Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 252. My name is Terry Frost and this time around doing a couple of movies that are very different. One's well known, one is less so. The first one is Midnight Cowboy, the 1969 John Schlesinger movie starring John Voight and Dustin Hoffman. And then I'm going back to 1949 for a Japanese movie, the second collaboration between Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune, and it is The Quiet Duel. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, and we'll get this puppy happening. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of old movie appreciation. There's only a couple of rules here. The first one is the movie has to be at least 20 years old, and that's a rule I break occasionally. And the second rule is I have to find some interesting things to say about it. Uh, feedback's very important to the podcast, so you can offer it a couple of ways. You can offer some at feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. And also, or you can send me an owl if you went to Hogwarts. You can even support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as $1 US per month. Just be aware with the podcast, I may swear occasionally, so you might not want to let your kids hear it if you don't want them to pick up filthy words with Australian pronunciation. Okay, so how is everybody doing? Uh, It's a bit chaotic here at the moment. Uh, And by the way, we're doing the 15-minute rule, the rigid rule saying that I've got to start talking about the movies 15 minutes of the podcast. Yeah, chaotic as fuck around here. Uh, First off, we're going to Japan in a couple of days. It's got down to a couple of days. It's now Sunday morning and we're going late Tuesday night. So things are mostly packed. We've got some things organized, the camera bags sorted, all of that kind of thing. The fam's coming down from Sydney and they're going to look after the house, which is kind of cool. They're arriving in a couple of hours. So I'm trying to get a podcast in on a very short timeline. So if I sound a bit frazzled, that's the reason why. But on the good side... Remember how for the past three million podcasts, I've been talking about getting the man cave organized. Guess what? It is now organized. It's fantastic. I threw out a lot of stuff. I gave away a lot of stuff to the Diabetes Australia charity shop. And the man cave is like 95% done. The only thing I've got to do is rearrange the reference books into some kind of logical order. And there are a few of them. But I will be able to get that done when I get back. It'll be one of the tasks for after we get back from the 13 days in Japan, which is mind-blowing. We are so looking forward to it. We're going to be doing YouTube videos. We've even started a new YouTube channel, a joint channel between Sally and I. And I'll post the links to that, which doesn't have any content yet in the show notes for the podcast, because that's going to be fun. We're going to collaborate. She's got her own channel. I'll have my own channel. And we'll have a collaboration channel because what the fuck we're content creators. It's the 21st century. And as I'm retired, I've got to find something to stop dementia. I will be recording a podcast or two while I'm in Japan as well. I'm taking my Zoom H2N microphone. So when I get totally frazzled from being in a city with a metropolitan area of 38 million people. Tokyo, for those who don't know, has the biggest metropolitan area of any city on the planet even those big cities in china don't even come anywhere near it it's a massively large place 
and we're going to be in Shinjuku, which is going to be fun. A few days in Osaka, uh, a day trip to Hiroshima, and the rest of us going to be in Tokyo. So, yeah, fantastic stuff. Looking forward to it. Thinking of buying a new camera, um, which will be fun. But, yeah, if I keep talking about that, I'm going to get way past the 15-minute mark. But back to the Manco for a minute. I had about 10 years' worth of accumulated stuff in here, and it was daunting. It took me four days of hard work, including moving around a lot of uh, heavy pieces of shelving and getting a couple of bits of industrial shelving in. Uh, yeah, I had a lot of stuff, and a lot of it I didn't really want anymore. So there's probably a few things I still don't want around here, but for the most part, I got rid of everything. Uh, we took a truck uh, carload of it to the dump, which is fun because you get to throw things down into a giant pit where they sort it out. And the man cave has become a kind of haven again, which is what I wanted to get it back to. Uh, I can sit in here. I've got um, a turntable, a cassette deck, oddly enough. I've got a CD player all hooked in there. The sound quality is crisp and I can kind of just come in here, chill out, do my own thing and um, yeah, it's come back to being a sanctuary again, the way a man cave should be rather than just a lot of clutter in the middle of which is a desk, a microphone and a few other bits and pieces. I'm feeling very pleased and smug about this, but there hasn't been a lot else going on. We've done a total spring clean of the whole household. For the guests coming over, guests are something that we've had a lot of. But um, there's room for everybody. We've got inflatable mattresses for people to sleep on while we're kind of overlapping. And, um, yeah, it's uh, I'm kind of just waiting for things to happen at the moment. And I'm in that kind of interstitial headspace where I'm not quite still at home in a sense, but I'm not yet on one of the great adventures of my life, which the next you know, 15 days or so will be. I'm happy to pick up a few movies as well, which is going to be fun. I do have the uh, kanji symbols for English, so I can see whether there are English subtitles for any of the movies that I can pick up. And you can pick up some movies fairly inexpensively, secondhand and of good quality, in shows in um, shops like Hard Off. Uh, all around the place so yeah i'm going to be doing a little bit of scrambling around and finding some things hope to find a bit of music as well and for the most part a lot of kind of pop cultural stuff uh thinking for the youtube channel of doing a bit of a thing about my favorite classic anime while i'm in japan because i can use the city as a backdrop for what i'm talking about and that makes it visually a lot more exciting so um yeah weird and wonderful times and uh really looking forward to it shout out to my friend alex who was our travel agent and got us some good deals if you look me up on instagram as well you'll see some of the photos from the trip it's either at cult guru with a k or at boy movie buff i'm doing the movie related um pictures that i take under my new instagram um at boy movie buff the other thing the other thing that's really exciting for me at least is on the YouTube channel, I did uh, the In Memoriam for 2018 because I didn't like the ones that the Oscars do. It went viral. For some reason, the Google algorithm picked it up and threw it into a low-Earth orbit. And so at this stage, it's had 106,000 views. I think the subscription's up to about 306 subscribers. When I hit 1,000 subscribers, 
I'd start to be able to generate money from YouTube. It may only be like pocket change at the start, but I'm kind of looking into it and saying, why the fuck not? I'm going to see what I can do with that and see if I can make a, a bit of coin out of it, which will be a lot of fun to do. And that takes us on to the next part. What have I been watching? Not as much as I'd like to because I was busy cleaning up this whole house. But I did see a few things. There's an Australian kind of exploitation soft porn movie from the 1970s, which was filmed in Perth in Western Australia called Plug with Two Gs. I watched about half of that on Amazon Prime because it's incredibly bad and the script's all over the place and it's got a bit of nudity, which is okay. But it's really shit. If you're an exploitation completist, you're going to see Plug. Otherwise, to be really honest with you, I wouldn't bother. Uh, I've been watching a, a bit of television as well. I'm catching up on Star Trek Disco, which I'm enjoying a lot. Uh, let's see what else. Saw the second season of American Gods so far, and that too I enjoy. Ian McShane is never bad in anything, really. Uh, and Neil Gaiman's story of uh, gods transplanted to America and fighting a war between the new gods and the old gods has drifted a little bit from the original novel, but not in a bad way because the novel was written a couple of decades ago. And so updating it for the changes in our society, which are ever increasing and ever accelerating, is a kind of wise thing for the show runners to do. If you haven't grokked American Gods, you really should. It's um, really interesting. It tells stories visually in a quite an original way. And I highly recommend it. The other thing I've seen, which relates back to movies, is the first season of Mystery Road, the TV series, the six-part TV series, that continues the story of uh, an Aboriginal detective, Jay Swan, that started in the movie Mystery Road and its sequel, Goldstone. Um, as previously, it stars Aaron Pedersen as Jay Swan, and we get a continuation of his story as he investigates the disappearance of a couple of um, farmhands up in the Pilbara part of Western Australia. And it works. Uh, all of the episodes were directed by a fine Indigenous director, Rachel Perkins, who does some fantastic things with establishing shots and timelines. And that really kind of gives it a, a striking visual style. It's out on disc here in Australia. I think iView may still have it for those of us here. But if you're interested in it uh, and you're overseas, you may need to kind of buy an import. Nonetheless, it's, it's worth checking out. Judy Davis is in there as, a, as part of the supporting cast. Colin Friels and a bunch of other um, fairly well-known Australian actors. It's quality television and I enjoyed binging that over about a day and a half. I, I watched these six episodes. And it didn't disappoint me one tiny bit. I continue doing the radio gig as well for ABC Local Radio in the Northern Territory. And that's been a lot of fun. Uh, we actually did Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Lisa Pellegrino and I actually recorded it in Melbourne because she was remote broadcasting the evening shows for ABC Northern Territory from the Melbourne studios at uh, Southbank. And we got to sit across a panel and talk about it face-to-face, -face, which is a very different thing than me sitting in a booth with headphones on and a microphone and listening to somebody about three and a half thousand kilometres away. 
And so Lisa's a lot of fun. She knows her stuff. She's very good at asking questions that further the conversation, which I appreciate because sometimes you need those prompts. You're there waffling for half an hour and you start to get into that thing where you repeat yourself. And she's good at picking up on that and moving the conversation on further. So we had a lot of fun with that. Um, yeah, I like Lisa. She's uh, fun. She loves her job, which is always a good thing when you're doing a gig with radio presenters. You can tell the people who are incredibly passionate about what they do, and there are a number of them in the ABC. I think there's only been maybe one or two that didn't over the past decade that I've been doing this. And I love their passion, and it always brings up my energy when the people I'm talking with are also passionate about what they're doing. And I had a little message between Lisa and I afterwards, and she says that she loves doing her job because it doesn't feel like work, it feels like fun. And I could really appreciate that. I also did a few videos as well. Uh, I put together my top five Larry Cohen movies for the YouTube channel, which is getting some views. It's not getting quite as many as I'd like to, but it's getting some views. And I did a cinema in memoriam for January to March 2019, which has got a few people in there. Agnes Varda died, for instance, Dick Miller, Albert Finney, um, Bruno Gans. So there were a lot of people to throw in there. And uh, that's I was put that one out kind of on the tail of the in memoriam that went viral to try to kind of increase the views on the channel. And it does seem to be working. I mean, if something works, you want to do a follow-up to it. And I'm learning more and more about how to do that with this particular platform and how to kind of, when lightning does strike, how to light a fire with it. And so, um, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a lot of fun to do. And in doing those things, of course, I'll keep learning more and more about video editing and putting together a punchy little, say, how many minutes of these things. The Larry Cohen was about 10 minutes. The In Memoriam for the first three months of 2019 was about five minutes. So putting together a punchy and, and kind of sharp-paced and visually interesting thing is um, something I'm increasingly learning and I'm really having a lot of fun with, in the same way, of course, that Lisa does with her job with ABC Radio. So we're coming up swiftly on the 15-minute mark. So I'm going to play the obvious track to play before I talk about Midnight Cowboy. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear words saying Only the echoes of my mind People stop and stare I can't see their faces Only the shadows of their eyes I'm going while the sun keeps shining Through the pouring rain Going well the weather suits my clothes Banking off of the northeast winds Sailing on summer breeze And skipping over the ocean like a stone Wah, 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 wah. 
shining through the pouring rain. Going where the weather suits my clothes. Banking off of the northeast winds, sailing on summer breeze, and skipping over the ocean like a stone. Everybody's talking at me. Can't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. I won't let you leave my love behind. No, I won't let you leave. That, of course, is Harry Nelson's version of Fred Neal's Everybody's Talking. Um, it's a great hippie song, that one, isn't it? It's got, it's got the kind of wandering hippie kindness to it, in a sense. Um, it's a strange song in some ways for Midnight Cowboy because it's almost the opposite of the character Joe Buck played by John Voigt in the movie. And, of course, it's nothing like... Enrico Rizzo, Razzo Rizzo, played by Dustin Hoffman. But it's a really satisfying song in a lot of ways. Uh, but Midnight Cowboy, 1969 movie, directed by John Schlesinger, based on a 1965 novel by James Leo Herlihy, uh, which covers a lot more ground than the movie does. A lot more of the book is about the early life and the life in Texas of Joe Buck before he takes his trip to New York and has his kind of eye-opening adventures while trying to be a gigolo in the city of New York. The book, Joe Buck's a lot more complex as well. He's more comfortable and, well, not necessarily comfortable, but he's less uneasy about sexuality, fluidity, and he ends up sleeping with people of both sex because he's just while he does sell them he just doesn't give a fuck and that makes him a much more complex and sympathetic character than the joe buck we get in the movie uh there's that kind of look that john void takes on in there with the um coonskin suitcase and the buckskin jacket and the cowboy hat and the scarf around his neck he's kind of persona that Joe Buck has is, as the title suggests, not exactly true cowboy because he didn't, you know, he's kind of more Roy Rogers in a sense than Randolph Scott's characters in, say, the renowned westerns. And I always refer back to the renowned westerns because they're my favourites. He's a kind of faux cowboy. He works as a dishwasher in Texas in a diner. He had a relationship of sorts with a girl called Annie, in Texas, who had mental issues. And again, there's a slightly unnuanced look at mental health issues in this movie. I think we're really kind of getting to a stage where we have more sympathy for people with a mental illness than 
the world of 1969 America, or even Australia for that matter, well into the 1990s. And the movie also, in the flashback scenes, gives us some backstory on why Joe is the kind of person who decides to go to New York to become a gigolo and sleep with rich women and not think too much past that. Joe was raised by his grandmother, who was quite popular with men, and you get the impression in some very kind of almost subliminally fast at times flashbacks that show that Joe was sexualized early and was kind of because of his grandmother's sexuality pre-programmed to think that sleeping with rich old women was a good business plan because his grandmother Sally Buck slept with a lot of men. There are a lot of uncles in quotation marks for during Joe's childhood. And there's a slightly kind of creepy, semi-incestuous um, scene or two with Ruth White, the actor playing uh, Joe's grandmother, Sally Buck, which are, are slightly creepy from our point of view. And there's a lot in this movie which is kind of informed by Schlesinger himself being gay and being a Londoner, so he's got that outsider's viewpoint on America. And we get a really good lot of sequences as Joe takes the bus from Texas to New York. He's got a portable transistor radio, which is about the size of a small shoebox. And he listens to the radio going across the country. And as he travels, the radio stations change. You go through the Bible Belt and you get the evangelists on the radio. And as he gets towards New York, the radio stations change. You see some interactions he has with other passengers uh, where he's trying to be friendly and you, you get the sense. And, and this doesn't diminish at all through the course of the movie, the sense that, of Joe's loneliness, which is one of the main engines of how he acts and how he reacts to people. Essentially, Joe is a very lonely guy. He's not well-educated. I don't think he's stupid. He's more cunning than um, kind of book-learned. But I don't think he's necessarily a stupid character. I think he's deeply naive. And he's definitely somewhere on the Dunning-Kruger spectrum of self-delusion, which is something that the American dream encourages, of course. And the movie's also got a lot to say about poverty as well, because Joe was brought up poor in the country. And that relationship he has with uh, Annie is his attempt to deal with the loneliness and kind of come to terms, I suppose, in some ways with that poverty. And when things don't go well with his relationship with Annie and she's taken away to a mental hospital and Joe is raped by a bunch of men, which we see again in some quite fast flashbacks, there's a kind of break there for him. It's, I wouldn't say it's a psychotic break, but there's a worldview change in Joe at that stage where he decides to get out of the toxic environment in which he was raised and try for a better life in the only kind of way he knows how. Now, even though there are some scenes of violence where Joe is violent, I mean, he's a strapping young guy and he doesn't think things through particularly well. There are a couple of scenes of violence in this movie which 
make us uncomfortable with him as a character. Nonetheless, things are set up before these acts of violence that make him, if not sympathetic, then comprehensible to the audience. We understand why he is what he is and why he does what he does. So Joe gets to New York and gets himself a hotel in Times Square and doesn't know enough to know to tip the bellboy. And, of course, this is the Times Square of the 1970s. This isn't the Disney-fired Times Square of the 21st century. It's definitely the sleazy grindhouse cinema, prostitution, kind of sex shop Times Square, which, when I was there about 21 years ago, was just dying out. I did go to Playland, the last of the kind of adult shops um, in New York, and looked around there for a little bit. But And I kind of got that sense of what Times Square was in the time that this movie was made. And you see it again in movies like Shaft and a number of other ones, where Times Square was sleazy and run down and kind of interesting in a way that it wasn't all when I went there um, a couple of decades ago. There was a brew pub with a brewery stuck in it in the middle of Times Square. There was a Disney shop. There were still a few cinemas around Times Square, but they were showing very much mainstream movies. And I was it was kind of maybe 80% into that transition towards tourism orientation, which wasn't previously the um, way things were in that part of the world. So Joe, being the clueless fuck that he is, tries to pick up women by asking them where the Statue of Liberty is and kind of doesn't do particularly well until he meets a character called Cass, played by Sylvia Miles, who, of course, was in a whole bunch of Andy Warhol, Paul Morrissey movies. And we do get to see some of the um, Andy Warhol gang in a prolonged party sequence later in the movie, which is kind of interesting as well. Viva's in there and Ultraviolet, I think, is in there. And you get that kind of, not named as such, but the Andy Warhol party scene kind of thing. I'm getting ahead of myself with that a little bit. Uh, Sylvia Miles uh, picks up Joe and um, kind of cons him as well. You know, they have a, a nice session together and then he brings up the subject of money and she bursts into tears and he ends up lending her money for cab fare which is kind of a nice reversal. He is probably one of the most inept gigolos in the history of the world. Hey, Sylvia Miles is still alive too. She's 94 years old now and still looking at the flowers from the right side up. Uh, That's kind of cool. She was in Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, which I haven't seen because I didn't like the first Wall Street. But she turns up in that as well in 2010. So, yeah, I mean, I like Sylvia Miles in this. She gives a really nice performance as a kind of complex, wealthy New York wife and in a way that a lot of people didn't in movies at this stage, she wears her age really well. She doesn't have the kind of buffed and filled and puffed-up look that an actor of her age at the time, she was born in 1924, so if I crunch the numbers on that, she was about 45 at the time, and she wore the age well without artificial plastic surgery and all those other things, which are now par for the course 
uh, in the careers of women in Hollywood. Joe starts to get poor. He gets locked out of his room and tries to make some money um, on the streets. The He goes to a movie house with a young man who promises him money if he lets him go down on Joe. Uh, played by Bob Balaban, a very young Bob Balaban in his first movie role, which is kind of cool and interesting. And Joe then becomes violent towards the young man after the act has taken place in the men's room of the... Um, well, the, the act takes place in the cinema, but they go to the men's room to discuss the finances. And it turns out that the guy is a young, closeted student and has no money. Uh, just a few coins and things like that, and Joe bashes him and um, leaves him there in a puddle of self-loathing and... Um, yeah, there's a kind of cruelty there that, again, as I said, he's not a sympathetic character, but he's a comprehensible character. And one of the things that Schlesinger does insinuate in the movie, got to remember this is a time when homosexuality wasn't looked kindly upon by most of the cinema-going audience. He makes some of Joe's gay clients, in fact, there are two main ones, sympathetic. And that engine, that is part of the engine for us, understanding that Joe is not the best person in the world. The other person with whom he has a form of encounter is an older man played by Bernard Hughes. And Joe treats him incredibly poorly, beats him up savagely in a hotel room. And again, that character is a closeted person. He's kind of living from out of town he's in a hotel in new york to try to get a bit of action and to try to you know take care of his own loneliness as much as any kind of sexuality and joe beats him up and um knocks his false teeth out uh yeah they're very uncomfortable scenes to watch from our viewpoint but as joe's kind of homelessness kicks in he goes in a bar and meets Enrico Rizzo. Enrico Salvatore Rizzo, a con man with a limp, who takes him for $20 by saying he will introduce him to a pimp. And what Rizzo does, and he's got a kind of wry sense of humour, and this is one of Dustin Hoffman's best roles, is instead of taking him to a pimp, he takes him to a ma fucking mad religious fanatic played by cult movie actor or cult actor in television as well, John MacGyver, which is kind of cool because we saw there are a couple of references in this film to Breakfast at Tiffany's because this movie can be seen as a flipped Breakfast at Tiffany's with a much darker outcome than that movie. And John MacGyver was the guy behind the counter at Tiffany's in Breakfast at Tiffany's. And in Midnight Cowboy, we see him as a crazed religious fanatic who tries to pray the evil and the sin out of Joe. And that's kind of cool. The other reference we get for Breakfast of Tiffany's in this movie is at one stage Joe's walking past the entrance of Tiffany's in New York and there's a man who's either unconscious or dead lying on the footpath outside and nobody else notices. So one of the things Schlesinger is obviously doing with this is saying, this ain't Breakfast at Tiffany's. And I kind of like this. Uh, this movie came out like seven years after Breakfast at Tiffany's, so that would have been fairly fresh in the pop cultural mind of the audience as well. But while broken, doing a bit of kind of casual dishwashing again, Joe meets up again with 
um, Ratso, who doesn't like being called Ratso, of course, who takes him to his squat in a, a kind of derelict building, which is about to be torn down, and they kind of cohabitate in this squalid little squat of a place where they don't have much money. They're drinking soup, you know, canned soup, and with crackers crumbled in it, and they kind of build up a friendship. Now, there was at one stage the idea that there would be a sex scene between Ratso and Joe. It doesn't happen in the movie, and I don't think it needs to happen because Joe's needs as a character, aren't, and, of course, Ratso's as well, aren't necessarily sexual. They just need to have a human connection and to have friendship and somebody who cares about them. When Joe gets past his idea that self-image is a stud, and realises that maybe he isn't, he gets to a more basic level of need where what he needs is a safe place, a roof over his head, and someone who cares about him. And that kind of damaged friendship between Joe and Ratso is, in a sense, the heart of the movie. And we learn, that, of course, that Ratso isn't in good health and he is a bit grubby. And Joe becomes almost a maternal figure to him at times in the same way that... In other scenes, Ratso becomes almost a maternal figure to Joe and looks after him as well. So there is that kind of mutual dependency and friendship and, and caring that builds up. And the relationship is you know, a really interesting one because it's not the kind of relationship that you saw between men in movies at that stage or even today. You don't see tenderness between men in movies very much. And in a movie as sexually complex as Midnight Cowboy, it's an even bolder move. I think it's... Um, I'm not going to say a brave movie because that's a little bit of a cliche. It's an elaborate movie when it comes to the human heart. And that makes it interesting even from our point of view. It, I, don't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily say that the movie is dated, even though it is from another time a fairly long way away from now. I think that it's become a kind of historical movie in a sense. But like most good cinema, it talks to things that we need to talk about now and that we do talk about now. It's kind of, you can look at it one way, and this is just a kind of off the top, top of my head interpretation. It's a man's journey away from a toxic masculinity towards a more caring and adult and nuanced idea of what a man does and how a man stands up in life. Now, Joe later on meets a party girl, a wealthy party girl, played by Brenda Vaccaro, who's really good in this too. She doesn't get a, a very long screen time, but she definitely leaves an impression and she does discuss the possibility with Joe that he might be gay. He proves he isn't, of course, but there's, um, you know, she kind of gets him to think about things that he hadn't previously thought about. And I kind of like that as well. Um, she's not unkind to him, even though he's there basically to get money from her and, you know, they have a good time together and things like that. Her more worldly viewpoint opens him up to the possibilities of him seriously thinking about what kind of a person he wants to be. 
when Joe comes up impotent and then they have a discussion about it and then they have some very kind of full-on violent sex as Joe tries to prove that he's not gay. Um, doesn't necessarily convince he could be gen- you know, kind of bisexual, which is my interpretation of it at least. And the Brenda Vicaro character takes both Joe and Ratso to the Warholesque party. And one of the things that Schlesinger just said is that he thinks the party scene went on a bit too long. But um, it kind of worked for me. It showed the other side of New York that wasn't part of Joe's previous experience of it and did show, kind of underline, Joe's poverty and his kind of lack of education and lack of sophistication. It did kind of highlight that at a point where we kind of needed it to be underlined. Meanwhile, Ratso is becoming increasingly unwell. He's maybe getting pneumonia, but he won't go to doctors because he's had previous bad experience of doctors. And that, again, gives us a little bit of an idea about his backstory without necessarily going into the detail of it that we get with Joe's backstory. And so Joe robs Bernard Hughes' character, one of his clients, beats him up. And because Ratso thinks that going to Florida is going to be good for him, they get on a bus and go to Florida. And then there's this extended dream sequence about what they think their life in Florida is going to be. And it's outrageous and silly and campy and kind of wonderful and aspirational. I like that scene, even though it is very much OTT. I like those scenes because they show that these fucked up guys are looking for a better life in some way. And even if their idea of what a better life would be is kind of silly and childish in a lot of ways, the fact that they have these dreams makes them maybe sympathetic characters, even though, again, I have some problems with that violence that Joe perpetrates on various people. The fact that he takes care of Ratso on that ultimately nightmarish and, and horrible trip to Florida shows that he's changing as a human being and that there is, in some ways, the possibility of him ultimately becoming a better man. And there's an immense tenderness between Joe and Ratso in those final scenes of the movie, and Joe expressing a sense of humour that gives us an idea that maybe he is, in some ways, growing up, and he is kind of seeing through his own self-delusions. And I really love that part of the film. Now, I got this movie for three bucks. I went to the um, flea market in Ballarat. Cassell and I were looking in to see what was there. We went with Sue Ann and Trev, a couple of our friends. And there's a guy selling off DVDs because everybody suddenly decided they don't need DVDs anymore. And I picked up that and a bunch of other DVDs, including, I think, Deliverance I got for five bucks. Maybe it wasn't Deliverance, but... I got some good quality films of yesteryear for three bucks each. Uh, I checked the discs and the discs are all really nicely looked after. I hadn't seen Midnight Cowboy since maybe the 80s and I really liked it. It was um, a really satisfying movie to watch. Weirdly, originally they cast Lee Majors to play Joe, 
but he got caught up with his um, obligations, I think, to do the Big Valley TV series that got renewed for another season, so he wasn't available. And so they then went with John Voight. Imagine what this movie would have been like with Lee Majors playing Joe Buck. Um, I'm not sure it would have been anywhere near as powerful. But, yeah, um, it is a great three-buck spend. And I think it's a movie I appreciate more than when I first saw it because I think I know more about the world than I knew when I first saw it. I think I had some lingering homophobia from my upbringing the first time I saw it. But this time around, it was incredibly rewarding film to watch. So far, it's probably the best rewatch I've had this year in a movie. I'm just looking over my letterbox, and yeah, I, I would definitely say that. So anyway, I'm going to take a break. Now, when I get back, I'm going to talk about a Kurosawa, the Shiro Mifune collaboration, which doesn't get a lot of love, and that is The Quiet Duel from 1949, which is definitely not a samurai movie. <laughs> Oh, yeah. 
That was Ue o Muuti Ariko, also known as Sukiyaki by Kyu Sakamoto. And it seems like a, a kind of song that has the right mood for the movie. I'm going to talk about The Quiet Jewel. By the way, Kyu Sakamoto, uh, was, the song was known as Sukiyaki in English. But he died in an uh, aeroplane crash in 1980-something. Um, the biggest one-plane crash in the history of the world. There was something like 500 people who died on um, Japan Airlines Flight 123. And as someone is going to fly Japan Airlines in the next couple of days, um, that's a bit worrying. Uh, the plane crash was in 1985. It hit a mountain in Ueno. But let's talk about the quiet duel. Um, the original title is Shizuka Naru Keto. And it's a 1949 film directed by Akira Kurosawa, second of the 16 collaborations between Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune. Um, Mifune, it's a very different role from the ones we're used to seeing him in. He plays a doctor in this one, Dr. Kyoji Fukasaki, who is a kind of army doctor during the Second World War for the Japanese. And in 1944, when there are no resources, really, he's kind of working in the equivalent of a mash unit and accidentally cuts himself with a scalpel that had been used on a patient, and that patient had syphilis. Now, syphilis was a lot more difficult to treat, particularly in a resource-poor place like Japan post-war and during the war. And because... Dr. Fujisaki wasn't available, wasn't able to get the medicine he needed to treat the, the spirochetes of syphilis that were in him. It progressed to the full-blown syphilis. Now, this caused him problems. It's, then we cut to 1946 after the war, and Dr. Fujisaki is treating himself with what they had available at the time, which is a drug called salvarsane, which was a kind of, it was a cure for syphilis, but it was a difficult one. It could lead to um, liver damage and um, rashes over the body as a part of the treatment, and it was a very long treatment. It could take a decade to cure the syphilis. It, it, it Basically, you had treatments, then you have a few months rest, then you have more treatments by injection. It was a kind of really difficult cure for the disease. Of course, penicillin came along, but that wasn't necessarily available in post-war Japan. And so he has to work with what they had at the time. He's working as a doctor in his father's hospital. His father's a gynecologist, and he treats all sorts of patients in a very impoverished part of Tokyo. Problem is that Dr. Fujisaki was engaged to a young woman called Misao. And he's cancelled the engagement, but she still comes around and helps out feeding him and his father who runs the hospital and basically trying to re-establish their relationship. She doesn't know that he has been infected by syphilis and he doesn't want to tell her because she's at an age where they might not be able to have children if she waits for the 10 years for the cure to take for his syphilis, if indeed it does work. And he knows that she will wait the 10 years because she's in love with him as he is in love with her. But he doesn't want to inflict that on her. He's a good man and an honourable man, and he doesn't want to tell her for her own good, in a sense. And that gives us an incredibly 
difficult and morally complex problem for the characters involved in this movie. And Kurosawa ramps up that complication in a number of ways. Now, right at the start of the film, when the doctor's in the hospital under a tent during the war, dealing with the war wounded, one of the things that Kurosawa does, which he did a number of times to incredibly great effect, and you see that really intensely in this movie, is he uses sound to indicate things. Uh, You see rain on a kind of wicker wall screen, bamboo, there's some taiko drums, and as he's operating on various people, uh, the tent develops a leak, and so somebody's got to put a um, surgical pan underneath the leak, and you get the drip of water happening there. And this kind of detail to sound design, which is something which we kind of it can be seen as being blatant, but for me, it kind of intensifies atmosphere and mood in a way that really kind of supports the, the drama of the narrative. We see it in a number of times during this movie. It gives a kind of heightened reality to the movie. Even though it was all filmed on a soundstage, including the scenes of the war, they're all on a not particularly big soundstage. It does give us a sense of the world in which the characters are living. Um, I'm kind of in awe of this film in a lot of ways. Now, in the hospital that um, Fujisaki's father runs, there's a trainee nurse who used to be a dancer and got pregnant and is still pregnant with a child of a father that doesn't want a bar of her. And she's kind of listless and lazy and maybe a little bit slutty in a sense, but she's very cynical about life and does her job slouching around and, and doing it minimum possible. There are some exams she can sit to become a full-fledged nurse, but she's kind of unmotivated and doesn't necessarily have a lot of support for herself. And meanwhile, she's pregnant. Her name's um, Nurse Minigishi, played by Noriko Sengoku. And she goes through an incredible arc of character during the courses, from, as indeed do a lot of the other characters. But her one's particularly interesting because as she watches the Doctor dealing with things, and she finds out very early that he was inflicted with syphilis and that he's treating himself with uh, salvarsane. And she actually helps him by giving him the injections and becomes a, an assistant to him. And through that selflessness... And, of course, she's kind of attracted to the Doctor, even though he was engaged to Misao. She kind of finds her best self. Um, she has her child as the story progresses, and the Doctors allow her to live in the hospital with her child, even though she isn't married. So there's a kind of, they're all, in a sense, outsiders in a lot of ways. Uh, and I kind of like that. I love the fact that, these characters feel incredibly lived in. And for a 1949 movie, a lot of things are treated in a really adult way. There are some scenes where the doctor is dealing with a boy who has appendicitis and his parents are poor. They can't afford the hotel, uh, the, the hospital room, hotel room, hospital room. And so they take him on as a kind of pro bono case. Now, at the time, appendicitis was a difficult thing to treat. Got to remember, antibiotics were very kind of early stages at this time in Japan. 
and everybody's waiting around for this boy to see whether he's going to heal or not because there is a possibility that he won't. And the way that they know he's going to be okay is if he farts because the passing of gas means that his digestive tract is doing okay and it isn't blocked up by an infection. And so everybody's waiting around for this little kid to fart. This is 1949. You would not see this level of medical accuracy and also kind of earthiness in an American or an English or an Australian film of 1949. But in Kurosawa's movie, you see it and suddenly there's music playing and somebody's you know, playing a harmonica and stuff like that. And all of the people in the water celebrating because the kid farted and they know that he's going to be okay. It's a wonderful thing. Um, and even just the subject matter of the film, the doctor inflicted, you know, like infected with syphilis, is something that America wouldn't have touched during the time because of the Hayes Code and that insane morality that prevented grown-up stories from being told in American cinema. Compare and contrast with this movie... And you see the lost opportunities that were there. This is a, a solid film, fairly small budget. It was made by Dae Films. It wasn't made by Toho or anybody like that. But it's got some incredibly complex characters and incredibly complex moral decisions that need to be made. Now, one of the complications that comes up is that the doctor finds the patient who infected him, who had the blood infection that he caught, a guy called Nakata, and he meets him years later in a, a bar, and the guy tells the doctor that he's cured, even though he had syphilis worse than the doctor did. And the doctor realises that he isn't, because you know he, he can't have been cured in such a short time using the drugs they had available. And then the Carter tells him that he's married and he's going to have a child, even though the doctor knows that the guy's syphilis has not been treated. Fujisaki convinces the Carter to bring he and his wife into the clinic to have some tests run because there are a couple of possibilities here. The first one, that the child will be born normal with syphilis and they'll need to start it on treatments and that's a very complex thing, particularly for a newborn baby. And of course, also treat his wife who would have been infected by him. And the second possibility is that the child will be born with immense deformities because of the syphilis and may not survive. Carter, who's a street thug basically, doesn't believe him. Aaron reluctantly takes his wife and child for the test and they find out, yes, she is infected and that there's going to have to be intensive medical care in case of the worst-case scenarios for the child. So the doctor's dealing with all of this while dealing with his own problem of he can't tell his fiancée that he's got this infection because it's a shameful thing and he sees that it will ruin the possibility of her having children and finding happiness. And his self-sacrifice is causing him immense emotional anguish, of course, as it would anybody. And we find out during the, the course of the movie that he was waiting until he and Masao could be married, so he's never had sex. Even though he's a doctor, he's never had sex. He was doing the honourable thing and waiting for his fiancée. He gets this infection and he has to cancel his wedding, which is a complication because all of the families are involved as well. And push away his fiancée, even though she is coming and helping out in the hospital with food and, and looking after them in various ways, because she thinks there's still a possibility he will change his mind. So again, it's an incredibly complex movie from that point of view, 
And the the only real villain in the piece is Nagata, Nakata, who basically through his own laziness and, and kind of lust and inability to follow through, ends up in a situation which is kind of horrible and monstrous. By the time the child is due to be born, his wife comes into the hospital and the doctors realise that the child is dead and they've got to kind of help her deliver it and you know, and then teach, tell her to, what's happened and give her all of the circumstances. And that's a pretty monstrous scene. That, uh, and then the, the movie does something really interesting and important. We find out that the wife's name is Takiko and that, you know, who she is. She, after all of this happens, she leaves her husband and tries to find her own life. She's getting treated for the syphilis that he gave her and, and she's kind of moving on. And she and the nurse and also Misao have some conversations which kind of increases the reality of these characters. They're not just here as kind of placeholders for the anguish of the Doctor. They're not they're, they're complex characters in their own rights. They've got their own dreams and aspirations. They're, they Characters feel lived in because of the quality of the writing, the quality of the direction, and most of all, the quality of the acting by these women. Um, it's a really interesting few scenes in the film where that occurs and it's not about it even passes the Bechdel test because they're not talking about guys they're talking about their own lives and what they want as people and what their aspirations and dreams and and wishes are and that's kind for 1949 that's pretty fucking good this movie's a hidden gem I picked it up for 10 bucks on a whim at a um, DVD shop in the city because I saw you know Tashira Mifune Akira Kurosawa, a movie I hadn't seen before, knew nothing about it. On the front, you've got a picture, on the front cover, you've got a picture of Mifune smoking a cigarette, but knew nothing about it, went in totally blind. And this is going to be one of my favourite movies I've never seen before for this year. It's The direction, of course, is fantastic. The acting's fantastic. There's a crisis scene with Fujisaki, which is incredibly beautiful piece of acting again it's something that you wouldn't see in an american film in 1949 you wouldn't see a man crying and in tears and talking about his feelings and his aspirations and the things that he wants deepest but he can't have and as other people have said this is a kind of parable about the militarism of japan in the 20s 30s and 40s and the repercussions on other people on the population of japan of that incredible fucked up mistake it's not like the best years of our lives where the problems are a physical deformity in the sense you know the, the way the american film portrayed it it's a lot subtler and it goes to the way that families are destroyed and the potential is destroyed by the war and by selfishness the movie was based on a stage play called the abortion doctor but it doesn't feel staged at all. It was filmed on a soundstage, but it doesn't feel like that. There are some wonderful scenes, too, of the nurse um, hanging out things to dry on a line um, in the in the hospital, outside the hospital. And you kind of go, shit, they're recycling bandages. They're sterilising and washing bandages and reuse them because they have to. And yet 
the way that Kurosawa films it, all of these bandages garlanded on a clothesline have a, a kind of austere beauty about them, which wowed me when I saw it. It really is a wonderful film in so many ways. And again, comparing and contrasting with kind of English language cinema at the time, there is no comparison. This movie had the guts to do what it did and did it incredibly well. And that infantilization of English language cinema that came partly from restrictions in England and Australia, but also by the production code in America. This movie is one that you can point to and say, this is the reason why that was wrong. This is the reason why that was a crime against art and why it diminished and in some cases destroyed cinema. A movie this small, this personal, this intimate, that talks about some of the biggest issues of its era and does it incredibly well and confronts some of the problems that this country had at the time and in the previous years, honestly and completely. I mean, this is a movie you can point to and say, this is why censorship is wrong. This is why dishonesty in cinema is wrong. And this is why it's so very important that we retain movies like this to show us the way to make better cinema now. The Quiet Jewel is, for me, an incredible piece of cinema, and I love it. Find a copy. Uh, there is a Criterion edition, I believe, but I got the Director Suite edition. It's something you want to have in your collection and to watch. Anyway, I'm going to wind it up now because the family's about to arrive. They, I've got to show them how everything works in the house. I've got to pack the rest of my bag for the trip to Japan. And life could not better be. So anyway, thank you very much for listening. Um, I'm sorry this one's a little bit late, but there was a lot to do recently. Uh, thank you, of course, to the Patreon supporters who've stuck through the kind of slightly irregular production schedule for the podcast. And as usual, I'm going to honour the Patreon subscribers by putting the credits at the end. And then I'm going to play a bit of more contemporary Japanese music that I like from Pizzicato 5, just to leave us on a bit of an upbeat note while I go and travel 10 hours by aeroplane to a country my grandfather's tried to destroy. Take care of yourselves. Keep watching good movies, bad movies, particularly movies like this that are outside my comfort zone. Do all of those things. And in the meantime... I'll catch you guys later, and here are the credits, followed by some music. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast, done in a style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, 
Alyssa, our location scout. Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, the donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Richard H., our set photographer. Mark D., our extra. And David L., our extra. Kerry H., who is the accountant. And our newest supporter, Gary J., who is a CG effects technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H., our set photographer, Mark D., our extra, and David L., our extra, Kerry H., who is the accountant, and our newest supporter, Gary J., who is a CG effects technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. <laughs>